0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hundreds of Coloradans are behind NASA's Lucy mission to explore the asteroids that cuddle Jupiter. The launch is scheduled for Saturday. You'll hear from one of the leaders of the project. Then the case of a former Dominion Voting Systems employee who says he was forced into hiding, harassed and threatened over Republicans' false claims of election rigging. CPR's Ben to Birkland, has been in the courtroom and updates us. Later, Janice Joplin, The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, they all played a short lived but enormously influential Denver nightclub. It's like the summer of
1: love never ended in Frisco, it just moved east to the family dog. memories of a long lost love.
2: I cannot donate as much now as I could when I was working, but I still feel it's important to give what I can.
3: I gave because I've lived in Colorado for five years now and I've listened to CPR almost every single day and I felt like it was time for me to finally step up and support all the wonderful programming.
1: I value and trust this public resource. I have two children and I want it to continue well into their future. Whatever your reason for giving, thank you.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. NASA missions often rocket toward a singular target, a neighboring planet, a distant moon. The Lucy spacecraft, however, is going on a grand tour, eight destinations over 8 billion miles. Lucy launches tomorrow if all goes according to plan. The spacecraft was built by Lockheed Martin in Littleton, Richard Leip is the program manager. Richard, welcome to the program.
4: That's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. Thank you.
0: And kind of you to make time for us ahead of such a huge mission. Lucy is headed for the Trojan asteroids. What are they? Why are they important?
4: Yeah, the Trojan asteroids are are. Uh, remnants from the creation of our solar system, and they're trapped within the Lagrange points of the Jupiter orbit. um, They're gravity wells, and so they've been there for about four and a half billion years, and so they're planetesimals that made up the uh, that were the formation of the solar system um, as as we began four and a half billion years ago. So really old, old, old um, asteroids that were going to be flying by.
0: Okay. I love learning new words and I've never heard of a planetesimal. Will you just say what yeah. that is?
4: Planetesimal. So it's a, it's a small, it's a, it's th- there, it's an asteroid that's been, or um, from a collision um, so that turns it into a planetesimal, I guess we'll call it
0: that. Okay, fascinating. Yeah, and yeah. speaking of things that clue us into our beginnings, uh, maybe you should tell us why the mission is called Lucy.
4: Yeah, Lucy was um, is named after the hominid that was found by Donald Johansson um, many years ago, and uh, so it's the Australopithecus uh, fossil. And just like the fossil, uh, Lucy is going to go out and and find um, and, and and do science to help us understand the formation of our solar system, just like the fossil helped us understand how, um, as humanoids, we were developed. So very similar, and that's why we named it after Lucy.
0: I, I just think of these asteroids almost as time capsules. I mean, as you describe them, they've been trapped in this spot, and they are the stuff of the creation of the universe. Lucy will fly by eight of these asteroids, but won't land on them, correct? And, and I, I'm thinking Jap- Jupiter is a, a gas giant, so there's no landing there, just to be clear.
4: Yes, that's very true. We, we will not be landing on them. Um, landing takes a lot of fuel, which we don't want to take with us because it, it's heavy. Um, so we will be flying by at about 600 miles above uh, the surface of, of the asteroids and then taking science as we go by, pictures, uh, thermal, all kinds of science that we'll send back to Earth um, after we fly by each, each um, Trojan asteroid, which we call an encounter.
0: An encounter. You you say yeah. taking thermals. Do you want to say more about what kind of information that helps gather?
4: Yeah, we have a, an instrument on board that is called the Thermal um, Emission Spectrometer, and it flies. It's like a uh, really sophisticated uh, temperature uh, system. And so we fly by and they want to know the temperature of the surface, so that helps them. Um, determine the surface composition, bulk properties of these bodies um, of the asteroids, and that helps their understanding.
0: Of what they're made of, I guess.
4: Yes, of what they're made of, exactly. Um, There are several types. We're going to fly by three types, so we have a lot of diversity. There's C-type, D-type, and P-type asteroids that we'll be flying by.
0: That's fascinating. What makes them different? I'm just curious, what what we think they're made of?
4: Yeah they are different compositions. C types are made up of uh, a lot more carbon, so they're a lot um, darker in color. And then the D and P types have a little more, um, um, I guess I'll call it, uh, um, um, how should I say it? Um, more like water, and um, ice, and that type of stuff, and hydrous ammonia, that type of um, um, composition.
0: So Lockheed Martin has built multiple spacecraft for NASA At this point, do you just pull a design off the shelf and modify it a bit or what?
4: Um, Some of of the spacecraft design is pulled off the shelf, which makes it quicker for us. And, and, and And it's a proven product, which is really important as well. Um, but we also do have new design um, that we do bring forward in, in, in these discovery missions so that we can advance the technology. And Lockheed Martin's really good at developing new technology, getting it on the shelf, tested, and ready for a mission in less than four years. And and we're about at four years right now. Well, so what, very impressive.
0: What's new for Lucy? Like, what's the big innovation yeah, on think- board?
4: Yeah, the big new thing on Lucy is is the solar rays as you can see um, they are the big circular items off this each side and so they're that's very critical to this mission we need and then this is the, this mission is the furthest mission away from the Sun so we need large solar rays and with um, tip to tip they are 51 feet clear across so as tall as a four-story building.
0: so they're able to gather, solar power, even though they're quite far from the sun, they kind of look like giant Mickey Mouse ears, don't they?
4: They look like giant Mickey Mouse ears. Since we're in Florida down here, that's a really good um, an analogy. And uh, they produce about 500 watts of power out at the, um, trop- um, at the Trojan asteroids. So not very much. Only, you know, a 500 watt light bulbs out there. You can't even run your hair dryer on, on that kind of uh Of power. So we've designed this spacecraft to be very uh, power efficient.
0: Wow, that is remarkable. You say you're in Florida, obviously, for the launch. Lucy will not go as the crow flies. Tell us about the trajectory.
4: Yeah, the trajectory is really amazing. Um, It was developed with. mostly by Lockheed Martin, but in, in, in concert with Goddard as well, um, by our, one of our engineers, Brian Sutter, and it's quite elegant. And it has uh, three Earth gravity flybys, and then we go out to both Lagrange points to visit um, the eight asteroids, or well, seven, I guess. With one of them is a main belt asteroid, Donald Johansson, that we'll practice on as we head out there. So the Earth gravity assists are what we use to gain velocity on, on the vehicle, um, if we didn't have those Earth gravity assists, we'd have to have five times as much fuel on the on the spacecraft. So it's really important that we get those Earth gravity assists correct.
0: So it's basically leaving and then coming back towards Earth and getting kind of slingshot power.
4: Yes, absolutely. And actually, that's the fir- one of the first spacecrafts that really have done that to date. So we come back uh, three times from. Um, out of the Trojans and then back to Earth, so it's pretty impressive.
0: Also remarkable, yeah. Yeah. Lucy will hurtle through space for 12 years, I think, you know, of how that's longer than many cars last. <laughs> how do you prepare it to withstand that kind of harsh environment for such a prolonged period?
4: Yeah. Yeah, that's very critical. Um, as you mentioned, yeah, if you look at your furniture, right, after twelve years sitting out the sun, it's gonna be nothing left, right? It's it's gonna really so we we pull together um, you know, space-rated materials and we test it uh, very rigorously at Lockheed Martin. So we we test like we fly and we take it through all the environments, vibe, acoustics, um, EMI testing, which is electromagnetic interference testing, and then we also do thermal vac, so we take it really hot and cold and we go to minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit all the way up to plus 300 degrees Fahrenheit on this vehicle. So it's really a, um, a large range of temperatures and then it's also radiation hardened as well, which is very important
0: you mentioned vibe i think you mean vibrations it's just gonna it's gonna be jostled a lot
4: (laughs) yes yes Uh, on the launch vehicle we we go through an acoustic and a vibration environment um so we have to survive those g's g forces that are developed when we when we um lift off on the on the rocket
0: you're listening to colorado matters i'm ryan warner and if you are just joining us we are speaking with richard leip of lockheed martin in littleton He's program manager for the Lucy spacecraft mission to these Trojan asteroids near Jupiter. Uh, Richard's joining us from Florida ahead of Saturday's launch. Uh, Tomorrow is the first day you can launch, barring complications or weather like lightning, wind. You have about a 74-minute window every day. Why, Why is the window so short?
4: Um. It's it's based off of our trajectory, which we just talked about earlier. It's a very elegant trajectory, and we, um, in order to get us into that trajectory, we we have to have that short window so that the um, launch vehicle can get us there, and without having a whole lot of extra boosters um, on the launch vehicle, and so uh, and and fuel in the send tower. So they got to get us to the right spot so that we can go off and fly 530 million miles out to the Trojan asteroid. So it's you have to be pretty accurate, um, which makes that window so small.
0: You have uh, heretofore uh, worn your scientist hat, and I'm wondering if, and your engineering hat, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if I can... Uh, Get a little more into your heart now, Richard Leip, and just ask sure. in your brain, your emotional state, and just find out what it feels like to be you right now ahead of, you know, something that's been culminating for four years. what What are your thoughts? Do you sleep? Um,
4: <laughs> yeah, I tell you, it's um, um no, I haven't got a lot of sleep during this whole entire four- year period as a matter of fact. um, um it's been a really um, great. Experience for me and and the team. Um, I, I'm I'm just awestruck by the Lockheed Martin team and the, and their innovation and and excellence um, through this pandemic, which was really mm. uh, very difficult on us all. And so we they really pulled together along with uh, Southwest Research and Goddard um, to pull together as one team and make this happen. We didn't miss a beat. We didn't miss miss a shift of our Atlo, which is our um, um, integration and testing uh, portion of the mission. Uh, for, we do that for 14 months. So we didn't miss a shift during that time. So the team has really come together. So I can't be more proud of Lockheed Martin and, and all the team members that have helped Lucy get to this point. So it's, it's really, for me, it's the people that make this happen.
0: Well, and helpful to be reminded that you did all of this during the pandemic. I'll say you mentioned Southwest Research Institute. It's in Boulder. United Launch Alliance in Littleton had uh, a role in the coming launch from Cape Canaveral. And uh, the principal investigator, the head of science, Uh, being at Southwest Research Institute, there's a lot of Coloradans involved. I imagine that proximity must have helped to some extent as well. Well, thank you so much, Richard. Uh, break a leg! I don't. I suppose that's what I should say.
4: <laughs> yeah, we, we we're really looking forward to it. And all I can say is, hey, we drug the spacecraft across the finish line, and we're ready to launch and go Lucy.
0: Go Lucy! Richard Leib is Lockheed Martin's program manager for Lucy, the NASA mission to the Trojan asteroids near Jupiter. Lucy is aboard an Atlas V rocket at Cape Canaveral, and if all goes well, we'll launch tomorrow. Without proof, claims persist of widespread fraud in the 2020 election. And one Colorado man says those claims have ruined his life. Now a judge is deciding whether his defamation case can move forward. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland was in the courtroom for this week's hearing. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. Let's lay some of the groundwork for this case. Eric Coomer was the director of product strategy and security for Dominion Voting Systems, which is based in Denver. He filed a defamation lawsuit saying he feared for his life and had to go into hiding after getting death threats when the Trump campaign and others Spread misinformation about him. What were their claims, Benta?
2: Well, it started with a conservative activist from Douglas County, Joel Oltman. He claimed that he infiltrated a call with Denver area Antifa members before the election and heard a man identified as, quote, Eric from Dominion, tell the group that he would make sure Trump wouldn't win. Coomer's attorneys say the defendants never had a shred of reliable proof about the false claim. And Coomer's team says the pro-Trump media outlets and allies knew or should have known that Altman's statements were baseless and false when they repeated them.
0: And so it was these claims circulated in ultra-conservative media that led to these death threats and to Coomer. Uh, essentially going into hiding. President Trump's reelection campaign, its uh, former attorney Rudy Giuliani and former campaign attorney Sidney Powell all asked the judge to dismiss this defamation lawsuit. What were the grounds for their request?
2: They argued that they have a constitutional right to speak out about election integrity, which is a matter of public concern. Another argument is that they were speaking about something they had no reason to believe wasn't true. And they said they weren't obligated to investigate whether it was true uh, before talking about it or, or publishing things. And to prove defamation, a statement must be false and made maliciously.
0: Also named in this suit are One America News Network, The Gateway Pundit, which is a website, Michelle Malkin, a conservative columnist, and Joseph Oldman, the conservative activist here in Colorado who first made these claims against Coomer. I understand there was some drama during the hearing involving Oldman, uh, who was not happy with the proceedings.
2: The judge issued a decorum and civility order and said there will be absolutely no disruptive, threatening, or abusive conduct. There was a lot of security in the room, and then three of the defendants were there, including Oltman. And Altman posted on social media during the proceedings that he thought the judge was obviously compromised and colluding with a radical agenda and, and some other things as well. Later in the day, uh, Altman said the civility order was unconstitutional and infringed on his First Amendment right to speak the truth.
0: What did the judge do about all that?
2: Coomer's attorneys complained about the post to her and brought the issue up. And she said if they filed a contempt order, she would consider it.
0: I want to note that in May, the conservative news network Newsmax apologized to Coomer for claiming that he had rigged Dominion's voting machines. In a statement, the network said there was no evidence in support of those claims. And so Coomer dropped Newsmax from his defamation lawsuit and reportedly reached a settlement. What happens now with his case?
2: this hearing was to determine whether the defamation lawsuit can move forward. The judge has to decide if there's enough evidence for Coomer's side if the case might have a chance of winning in court. If the judge says this case can proceed, then there is a discovery period, which can be expensive and lengthy, and that's when the attorneys from both sides gather facts. Defamation cases can take years and are difficult to prove.
0: When do we expect a ruling from the judge, again, on this question of whether it can even move forward?
2: Right. We don't have a clear timeline. I talked to a First Amendment attorney who had a similar type of case, and it took a year. But some of the other people I talked to expected in this instance, there would be a decision sooner than that.
0: Let's talk a bit more about Dominion specifically. Benta, its equipment is used for elections in 28 states, including Colorado. Uh, The company itself is also suing Rudy Giuliani, among others, at least seven lawsuits so far totaling billions of dollars in damages. Where do things stand on that Dominion-specific front?
2: Right. Uh, a federal judge has ruled that Dominion can move forward with its defamation lawsuits against Giuliani, attorney Sidney Powell, and then MyPillow and its CEO, Mike Lindell. But a judge hasn't decided yet on on all of the cases. And I would say overall, these defamation lawsuits are in the very early stages.
0: Sticking with elections and spurious Fraud allegations. There was a key ruling this week involving Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters. She will not oversee the upcoming election on the Western Slope there, correct?
2: Yes. A a judge in Mesa County District Court ruled that Peters should not be allowed to have access to the county's voting machines because Peters allowed an unauthorized person to compromise their security earlier this year. Peters says, yes, she invited what she referred to as a consultant in to access the election equipment and the software update because she didn't trust that the state would properly update the voting machines. And Peters says she was worried about data getting destroyed. Peters plans to appeal this ruling. She called the Secretary of State's lawsuit to remove her from overseeing the election a quote, stunning abuse of office and a power grab.
0: One more note after that security breach, Mesa County commissioners voted unanimously to extend their. Uh, contract, essentially, with voting systems and the managed service agreement with Dominion, all to, uh, I guess, replace that equipment, but stick with Dominion, uh, Mm. because the equipment was decertified by the Secretary of State?
2: Yes, that's correct. And I I would note that audits of Dominion equipment in Colorado and other states have found no discrepancies in the vote tallies.
0: All right, Venta, thank you for your continued reporting on this. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. So much more ahead, a Colorado soccer star with World Cup aspirations. And a flash-in-the-pan Denver nightclub that welcomed the Doors, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Denver Broncos and the Oakland, or uh, Los Angeles? Oh, yeah, now Las Vegas Raiders have been rivals for decades. We don't like each other. I think the game in Denver was one of the most physical.
3: Oh, we have a fight on the other side.
5: The Raiders Look and
0: the Broncos. They can't stand each other. Like good hates evil. CPR's Vic Vela looks into the long history of Broncos country versus Raider nation at CPR.org the U.S. men's national soccer team is vying to play in the World Cup next year. As CPR's resident superfan, John Daly, introduces us to one Colorado player who's carving out a key role on the team.
1: Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City. The Colorado Rapids take the field. Starting in the center of things. number
3: 23, Kellen Acosta.
1: Kellen Acosta. Since arriving in Colorado three years ago, he's cemented his place as a top player on a team vying for a top spot with Major League Soccer's playoffs just weeks away. And he's doing it while also logging valuable minutes with the men's national team.
6: Any opportunity to to put on the jersey is always exciting times, and obviously these games are with importance.
1: Wearing a national team jersey in important matches is the holy grail for a U.S. soccer player. It's one Acosta's been chasing since he started kicking a ball around the soccer fields of Texas where he grew up.
6: My dream is uh, to play in Europe and play in a World Cup. That's always been my dream as a kid.
1: He hasn't yet played in a World Cup. But Acosta has made more than three dozen appearances with the U.S. team, a clear sign he's established himself as a star. We spoke over FaceTime as Acosta walked around outside the stadium before a series of road trips with five games in two weeks.
6: I'm just excited to be involved in every game and be a part of it, so that that part of me, I love what I
1: do. That passion comes through in the way Acosta plays. A tenacious defender with great ball skills, he covers a lot of ground connecting the defense and attack. His poise has shown through.
3: Acosta hooks it into the
2: traffic, a free header, and it's a goal!
1: As the U.S. recently won a pair of tournaments, and pulled out a big win in Honduras. Rapids coach Robin Fraser is himself a former national team player. It really is an amazing honor. The fact that he has put himself firmly in the mix, I think says a a whole lot about Kellen as a player, his character and just willingness to go in and do whatever needs to be done. Acosta's role with the squad represents a bit of a comeback story. He'd been a mainstay with the team, but a few months after the U.S. failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, for the first time in three decades, Acosta found himself off the national team roster.
6: Yeah, I mean it. It was uh, it was a tough, you know, couple of years of being absent national team, especially when I've been, you know, in the thick of things, you know, the years prior. And um, yeah, it was a tough pill to swallow, you know.
1: Acosta, who's 26, says he worked hard to get back to the U.S. squad, relying on his support system, his family. He zeroed in on being resilient and fine-tuning his game.
6: I think, you know, not being involved helped me kind of mature, helped me kind of focus on the little details that I kind of neglected in
1: a way. A lot has happened since, especially off the field. The pandemic hit, scrambling life and pro sports leagues. Then the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter movement inspired Acosta, who is black, to speak for social justice.
6: This could have been me. This could have been my, my brother, my dad, my grandpa, anyone.
1: Acosta joined the group Black Players for Change before a game. The emotions so clear. Kneeling or standing so with so a raised powerful. fist in silence for eight minutes and forty-six seconds, the time police held Floyd on the ground.
6: When you know I saw the video and it, it kinda of just hit home for me. And um, you know something that I knew as a person, not only as an athlete, but as a person that I need to step up.
1: Acosta says that's now even more important to him after becoming a father.
6: I just turned three in August. And yeah, I mean, it's it's been crazy, obviously, uh, becoming a dad and kind of see the world in a, in a different light.
1: Earlier this year, Acosta got called back up to the national team, and it came at a critical moment says former U.S. national team member and Rapids TV analyst Marcelo Balboa.
3: Soccer is on the rise here in the United States.
1: Not only is the U.S. vying for a spot at next year's World Cup, it'll co-host the next one in four more years. And Balboa says soccer's international body could pick Denver to hold some games.
5: Colorado's in the mix.
6: So these are exciting times.
1: Acosta echoes that.
6: I think we have a great team, but um, we haven't qualified yet.
1: Acosta is in the midst of a three-game run with the national team. By next year, the squad will know if it's made it, and Kellen Acosta will know if he's on the plane to the World Cup. I'm John Daly, CPR News.
0: Seasonally, we bring on a master gardener to answer your questions about getting things to grow or putting them properly to bed in the case of rose bushes. Well, we're taking your questions now for next week's conversation with Fatima Imad of Frontline Farming. Let us know what you want to know by emailing Matters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org for your gardening questions. In the 1960s, Denver was arguably in cowtown mode, except for when it became an epicenter of rock and roll, a destination for the likes of The Doors, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, and Jimi Hendrix. This Camelot of sound existed in a nondescript building on the outskirts of town.
1: It's like the summer of love never ended in Frisco. It just moved east. the family dog
0: the family dog a hippie music club on evans avenue was around for less than a year but turned denver into a musical destination and there's a new documentary about its supernova of an existence from september 1967 to july of 68 Dan Obarski helped make the tale of the dog. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and we also have on the line your co-filmmaker, Scott Montgomery. Hi, Scott.
3: Hi there. How are you?
0: I'm doing really well. Excited to talk about the dog. I wasn't around in 67 to go to it. Uh, Dan, why don't you take us there? I understand it was a relatively small space, but there was elaborate lighting. What else?
5: So this place, I, I was not old enough to have been there either. Uh, I'm a Denver native, and it, it, you know, if I could have gone back to one place, I would love to have gone back to the family dog. Mm-hmm. It was a magical place by all accounts. It was one of a kind. We didn't have anything like that in Denver. Uh, it was a full-on liquid light show, one of the first ones in the country. You had the psychedelic poster artists, the great ones of the era, doing posters for the show. You had this amazing uh, fluorescent uh, floor that glowed under black lights of the Family Dog uh, uh, logo. And you had the greatest bands, the rock and blues bands of all time playing there. And there was probably between 500 and 1,000 people
0: there at any given time. Yeah, well over the stated capacity, it's fair to say. (laughs) That's right. It's amazing, the stars who performed at the Dog, uh, as it was affectionately known. Um, Besides the acts that we've already mentioned, uh, gosh, Buffalo Springfield, which of course included Neil Young, Van Morrison, Chuck Berry. Uh, Dan, how did it become such a happening place?
5: Well, uh, it it, it started with Barry Fay taking a tape of a DU uh, band called Eighth Penny Matter uh, out to San Francisco to meet with Chet Helms, who is a legendary figure in the hippie scene. He ran the Avalon Ballroom, and he convinced uh, Chet uh, and Bob Cohen to open up what was essentially an Avalon Ballroom in Denver. And like you said, in one of the most unlikely places at 1601 West Evans, that's Evans and Pecos. Uh, And it all went from there.
0: Barry Fay, the noted and late concert promoter. A A mystique surrounds the family dog. This is Paul Epstein, owner of Denver's Twist and Shout records from the film.
1: Here's one of the most important parts about the dog and why it is so incredibly mysterious and interesting. There's no, other than the posters, there's nothing. There is a Doors concert, Uh, bad quality. There's a mother's concert in fair quality and a couple other little bits and pieces of audio history that exist. But unlike the Fillmore, the Avalon, the Carousel, the Matrix, the Grandy, where there are hundreds of tapes of all the great bands playing there, it's like, what happened? There's no tapes of the dog.
0: Nor are there many photographs. I mean, I can only... Imagine how hard that was, making a documentary. Um, Scott, what's your take on the lack of documentation? Was it, like, just not in the hippie ethos? I want to be clear, when I use the term hippie, that's a term of, of art in this film. But go ahead, Scott.
3: Right, the counter, the counterculture, as we sometimes call it, too. Um, you know, one of the things that we always forget nowadays when everybody has a camera on their phone is that back then, only a few people had cameras, and you look at the photos from the 60s counterculture, and it's by the same handful of photographers who were there on the scene. Mm. Uh, Dan Fong is one of them, Um, and he had said he had taken photos of the dog, but they were long lost. So some photos existed, um, but it was also an era that was just less photographed, and it was a smaller place than, say, the, the ballrooms that Dan mentioned out in San Francisco that were better recorded and better documented. So... It's maybe not surprising, but it's horrifically disappointing. And it made it hard to make a film.
0: Right. But now I'm thinking if there were photos, you know, maybe in someone's basement lurks a stack of them.
3: We have followed uh, a number of said leads. Oh, I've got some in a storage container. And we've never (laughs) found any results. We're willing to go clean up people's storage containers, find photos. Um, So there's always the hope. We are putting... But I can say after six years,
5: no it's been six years, and the only three photos uh, are the ones that are are really unfortunately not super usable in the film.
0: Oh, okay. We're putting out an alt points bulletin for photos of the dog. And just <laughs> yes. re- reach photos out to Connor Film. <laughs> film, yeah, right. Janis Janice Joplin serves as a sort of rock and roll bookend for the dog. She's there at its opening. And at its closing, let's listen. Janice was up in the
5: green room. And of course, she was belting back the uh, Southern Comfort and stuff. And I remember getting up saying, let's give the bastards a show.
2: When I saw her sing that first time at the family dog, it made me cry. I mean, that woman, she made me cry.
0: There are so many voices in this film, a great deal of like institutional knowledge when it comes to the Denver music scene. Scott, Dan, did you feel the clock ticking to preserve these stories?
5: Did we ever... That is exactly why we did this. You know, Scott and I got together six years ago, and uh, Scott was doing a poster show on the Denver Dog posters. Uh, he was the only other guy. I had known that knew anything about this place. And again, I grew up in Denver, never heard about it until I was in my 30s. Uh, and we said, you know what, let's let's do something about this. This history is uh being lost. You know, it started out as an idea for a you know an article or a book. And uh, to your point, people started dying from that era. And we said, we got to get these people on camera. Oh. You know, let's do a documentary. <laughs> you know, we were just a couple of guys had absolutely no experience, and uh, through sheer enthusiasm and naivete, uh, we 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 started calling around. You know, you just start with one person, and it leads to another. I mean, you're you're journalists; you know how this work. And next, I mean, people came out of the woodwork, and we're talking people in their 70s and 80s who you know couldn't tell us enough. Uh, and with enough uh, excitement about this place that they had been to fifty something years
0: before,
3: Scott. Yeah, as we um as we sort of say in the movie, without the photos and the film, the story resided in sort of the archive of individual memory. It was mm-hmm. people's memories to, we needed to piece it together, and they were dropping like flies. And we the the desperation of the immediacy of of capturing this history now while we could is really, as Dan said, what prompted us to make the film, because it would, only through interviews could the story be captured at this point. And so only through film could it really be told.
0: As Dan alluded to, neither of you had made a film prior to this. Uh, Dan, you work in healthcare. Scott, you're an art history, <laughs> art history professor at DU, <laughs> a six-year project. And uh, Dan, I gather this project began in part because of a conversation you had with your parents about... Growing up in what you indeed (laughs) thought was a a dusty cow town where nothing cool happened? What's this story?
5: Well, you know, it's funny. uh, You know, my parents are from New York City. My mom saw the Beatles' first U.S. show. They had this great kind of 60s experience uh, with that music. And, you know, I grew up down here in the Tech Center, and there was nothing going on in the 80s and then the early 90s. And that 60s culture was still reverberating. You know, those waves were still crashing uh, over us. And that was our music, too, because that FM classical music or classic rock format never went away. Uh, And... We just felt like we had been left behind. Our social studies teachers were talking about how great the 60s were. (laughs) Everybody, our parents, everybody talked. And we're just, you know, hanging out in the fields here going, God, this place is so lame. So when I saw a picture of Jim Morrison, again, in my 30s, uh, playing Rush at DU, at the student union, uh, I mean, I, I elevated like I couldn't. I was so excited. And that kind of started it for me.
0: The tales of Jim Morrison at the dog are just <laughs> um I'm I'm without a word to describe it but I I guess there's just a kind of howl cry that he does on stage at one point.
3: Yes. There's a lot of things he does on stage. <laughs> uh, and and it is, it's amazing how when we interviewed people certain shows and certain performers really seem to resonate with many people and the Doors performances were one of the ones that were most regularly referenced.
0: While The Family Dog was obviously a very sound heavy endeavor its legacy does live on through rock posters created for each show. Scott again you're an art historian and you argue these are world class pieces. Give me Absolutely. an example. Yeah, give me an example that illustrates that.
3: Um I I think that in many ways the poster that uh, Bob or Raphael Schnepp designed for the doors at DU that we used had him repurpose for the movie poster is one of the great examples of this art movement that comes out of San Francisco. Um, just you, you wanted a specific example. I think that's a good vibrant one. It has many of the traits of this art movement that originates in San Francisco, the sort of pliant, dynamic lettering, bold color, strong, dynamic line. Uh, It was a very clearly defined style. Uh, And I argue that it was an art movement. And these posters from Denver all came from this San Francisco environment. And we have a couple real winners that were made for Denver.
0: Yeah, and they often integrate existing imagery, often Old West imagery.
3: Right. Um, There was a lot, and you have two sort of iterations of the Old West. You have kind of the cowboys and outlaws, which fit the counterculture identification of being outlaws. You also have the appropriation of Native American imagery, which the counterculture very closely identified with, particularly in terms of preserving nature uh, and living at one in harmony with the world. Um, But they also identified um, with Native Americans as a people oppressed by the mainstream. We'll ta- uh, so there was this, this huge countercultural identity ingrained into the poster imagery.
0: We'll talk about that tension in just a bit. It was also the summer of love, which people usually associate with San Francisco, but in conjunction with the dead appearing at the dog, I think their first show in Colorado, Denver hosted its own love in at city park. And one of our listeners, Jeff Gutierrez, who reached out on Twitter was particularly interested in the Grateful Dead's dog show uh, as well as the poster that accompanied it. Anything you can tell us, Dan?
5: well, you know the f- people there were several shows that we heard about over and over again from people. The Doors was one of them uh interestingly we had we did not get any stories about the Grateful Dead show, and it was the first time as you said playing in Denver. Huh. Uh, and to the point about city, so the love in was at city park or the BN actually, uh, where the Grateful Dead played right there on that hill in front of the Natural History Museum, um, along with Captain Beefheart and Odetta. And the, the photos, when we saw those, we were like, that is unbelievable. We had no idea.
0: Odetta. Oh, to see Odetta live. My goodness. I <laughs> Well, indeed, not everyone shared the free love ethos. They say every, every great story needs a villain, and in the tale of the dog, that would seem to be John Gray, a Denver police officer who was tasked with keeping an eye on this venue and who certainly made his presence felt.
1: How do you feel about the hippie movement and about hippies in general? Do you, do you believe that they're, uh, they're bad for Denver? I think generally, I don't think they're any good for the community, no. You're quoted uh, somewhere saying you believe that, uh, that the youth is corrupted by the, by the whole hippie movement. Is that correct? I'd have to
0: go along with that, yes. I'd have to say that I believe that that's true. Well, that's archival footage, but you actually spoke with uh, an elder Gray for the documentary. Dan, what were your impressions of him?
5: You know, we went in there thinking, you know, all we we had basically heard, you know from the the so-called hippie side and the appreciators of the family dog. and we had heard what a bad guy John Gray was. Um, and when we finally talked to him, it kind of opened up another window for us into what was going on at that time. and John was more than willing to talk to us. He was a really not, he was a lovely guy. He hadn't changed his mind about anything, but he just came from a different era. And, and when we saw it through his eyes, we said, oh, I guess you can kind of see where he was coming from. Uh, and, and, you know, he had the, the backing of the mayor. He had the backing of all kinds of parents because all of a sudden, you know, these, these people who had fought in Korea and, and you know, World War II are watching their kids, uh, you know, dropping acid and dressing funny and living in these communal settings. And it, it freaked them out. And you know he was probably uh, uh, a jerk at times, <laughs> but um, he kind of uh, he 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 did, wasn't the he wasn't the bad guy per se that we had built up in our our imaginations about him.
0: I mean, there are newspaper clippings. I think that Gray provided in the film thanking yep. him for stopping the hippie scourge. So there were certainly people in Denver at the time who were grateful for his mission. The mm-hmm. tension between. The hippies and law enforcement comes to a head in October 1967 when Denver police arrested the members of the band Canned Heat at a hotel following one of their appearances at the family dog. Uh, the experience was later immortalized in a song, My Crime.
5: I went to Denver
3: late last fall. I want to do my job. Yeah, I didn't break any law We worked a hippie place Like many in our land They couldn't bust the place And so they got the band Cause of police in Denver
0: The band members say they were set up by Denver police. Gray denies it in the film. And there were long-term ramifications. To pay legal fees, Canned Heat ended up losing publishing rights to their music, uh, which included a number of lucrative hits. You know, I think of going up the country, Band much I want to go. Is it fair <laughs> to say, Scott, that that was really the beginning of the end for The Family Dog?
3: Um, Yeah, I think that's fair to say the beginning of the end may have started a little earlier when there was extra surveillance and pressure. The can't heat bust. The timing is sort of curious. It comes right after a restraining order against John Gray is granted. Um, And then the next thing you know, can't heat is busted. So there's this amazing it comes to a head right there. It's been brewing since they opened. Uh, but at that moment, it really was the beginning of the end and the San Franciscans get caught up in the legal matters and they begin to want to pull out. And by the end of the year, Chet Helms and the San Francisco family dog actually pull out of Denver and it carries on in 19 for half of 1968, essentially run by locals, including Barry Faye.
0: Barry Fay again, the concert promoter behind so many of the epic concerts at Red Rocks, for instance. Dan, how would you describe the club's lasting influence? I mean, I've been describing it as, you know, short-lived in terms of its, its doors being opened as a supernova, but the impact just seems indelible.
5: I think you're right. Uh, and, you know, we went into this just loving the idea of what the family dog was, but we, we didn't really have an agenda and everybody to a person without us leading them to that answer said, Oh, that's where it all started. There's no question. You had small clubs, the Exodus and the cave, and you had some local you know, talent. Um, but that was a national uh, scene that was brought to Denver. Uh, they had never seen anything like it. And it, it really was by all accounts uh, a pivotal moment in the city's history and to your point in, in, you know Barry Fay was the it's it started his trajectory and Barry was very much a businessman and he used that as his starting point and he went on to become one of the biggest rock promoters in the world
3: one of the think, oh yeah go, go ahead scott i just say the family dog sort of as we talk about in the film provided this sort of nexus for the counterculture to come together in denver and in some ways, it provided in a small scale for Denver what the great human being did in San Francisco as the first sort of public iteration of the sheer numbers of the counterculture. And it, it let them or it gave them permission to stick together. And so this is why I think the dog really was a watershed in Denver's evolution.
0: We have just a few seconds, but I wonder if you think there's a club today that carries on the spirit of the dog, Dan?
5: Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, the The easiest thing to point to is, and I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I would say the spirit, but the enduring legacy would be Red Rocks. I mean, it, it really is a mm. world-class destination, and without Barry Faye, you, it just, you just wouldn't have it what it is
3: now. Scott? I think... Whenever you see a light show at a concert now, if it's a good light show, you can thank the family dog Yeah, which, for starting it all here.
0: Which had just a remarkable light show that took yeah. a bunch of people, volunteers to run. Well, I share your desire to have been there. Uh, <laughs> not an experience I had, but one that you can have vicariously through the film. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Dan O'Barsky and Scott Montgomery are the filmmakers behind The Tale of the Dog, about the short-lived but influential rock and roll club in Denver. The film is streaming on a number of platforms, including Apple TV, iTunes, and Amazon. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that takes us higher, but like in a legal way. Carl Bielek,
5: Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
2: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
0: Matt Hers. Michael Hughes.
2: Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill.
0: Pedro Lumbrano.
2: Patrice Mondragon.
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.